0: Hey guys, welcome back to my podcast, Insta Crime. I am so sorry that I missed last week's episode. It was a super crazy week for me, and that was my fault. I actually switched the episode and decided to cover a different case instead. And this one we covered a little bit more research, but I think you guys are definitely gonna love it. So let's go ahead and just get started. Um, this week I'm going to go ahead and cover Dirty John, and this might be something that you've already heard in the past because it is kind of a popular, um, story, but I thought it was so intriguing. I was just like glued to my seat when I was, um, doing all the research for this. And I think you guys will too. If you like the podcast, there is actually a whole podcast series that is called Dirty John. And also there is a show on Netflix, which I think originally was on Bravo, that is also titled Dirty John. And you guys will understand that once we get a little bit further into the story. So let's go ahead and get started on the story. This is super interesting, so I hope you guys will love it as much as I did. And this is the story of Deborah Newell and John Meehan. I want to go ahead and get started with Deborah and her story. She was somebody that was pretty special in her community. She grew up in Orange County, and it was just really interesting that she had been through trauma pretty early on. By the time she was 25, she had a huge thing that happened in her life. So, Deborah was raised in. Orange County as I mentioned she was born to her parents her father was a youth pastor and her mother was a piano teacher and they were super Christian so she had a super Christian upbringing she is still a Christian now and so that's they're pretty conservative she had an older sister Cindy Newell and she was a bit older than her but they were still really close so Cindy Newell got married, this is her sister, got married when she was 18. She got out of the house. She married her high school sweetheart, who was Billy Vickers. So she had been with this man for about 13 years uh, when Deborah was 25. So she had pretty much always just been with the same person. And by the time that she hit 25 years old... Um, Cindy had been with, with her husband for 13 years. They had two children, uh, Shad. And the other one, they, the, it's just never mentioned. He wasn't as close to Deborah, so I assume that's why he wasn't mentioned. But basically, her sister was tired of being married to her husband, Billy, who was her high school sweetheart. He wouldn't let her do anything alone. He wouldn't let her wear um, like bikinis at the beach. So she was just, he was really overprotective, really jealous of her and she was just over it. So she decided to go ahead and actually divorce him. And so in 1984, I want to say it was March 8th of 1984. Yes, that's it. She decided to marry to divorce her husband the, the day before. She had rented a new place, so they were in the process of getting divorced. And on March 8, 1984, her and her husband actually got in this huge argument in their kitchen, and he actually shot her at point-blank range in the back of the head, like pretty much executioner style. And she pretty much died instantly. Now her husband, Billy, he actually went ahead and shot himself in the stomach as well after that, and then he proceeded to call 911. So, you know, I I don't know that he really wanted to die because why are you calling nine one one? But anyway, he calls nine one one. They get there. She's already dead. They can't bring her back. So she dies, and her husband is immediately arrested for the murder of his wife, who is Cindy Newell, and their two children were there as well. They didn't witness it, but they were in the house. Now, what happens after that is he is arrested for the murder of Cindy, and he is put on trial a few months later for, you know, murder in the first degree. He shot her pl- point-blank range, so he shoots her point-blank range, so she, he's obviously being convicted with first-degree murder. Um, now... <laughs> Here's the kicker, guys. This is what you're going to be scratching your heads about because I know that I was. So Cindy and Deborah's mother, who was Arlene, she actually testified on his behalf. So, yes, she actually stuck up for her daughter, Cindy's husband, who killed her. And it's really unclear as to why she did that. Some people think she had a thing for him. Some people thought that she just felt bad for him. She pretty much said that she was a Christian and was just all about forgiveness. So judge for yourselves. I find it a little strange. I don't know that I would be, you know, trying to get my husband's murderer off like that. But that, that's just me. So at the trial, she testifies in his defense, and she explains that she loved him and that she didn't believe that he was in his right mind when he shot and killed her daughter. So, you know, they kind of portrayed her in a negative light, her daughter. And so they pretty much threw her under the bus. Mind you guys, she's that She's a victim. And they threw her under the bus. So people were just so confused about this But basically because of her testimony, the jury acquitted Billy of the murder and he basically took a lesser plea of voluntary manslaughter. So he pled guilty to that in exchange to a five year sentence. So he was actually released in 1986. Mind you, the murder took place on March 8th of 1984. So I mean, he did like really minimal time for this crime. It's really really crazy, and it it's known that it was instrumental that his mother in law basically stuck up for him. So, you know, he gets off, and after Cindy's death, you know, of course it had a huge impact on her sister Deborah. Who this is that's what the story is about. So Deborah was super jumpy after that. She's a very nervous person. She hated handguns. She hated weapons. Um, People had actually told her later on that she should carry a weapon, and she just refused to. She just hated firearms, and she would just refuse to do that. And she actually got really, really close to her nephew, Shad, which is the one that's actually mentioned a lot in the story. That was one of her sister's two sons, the one that was actually staying with her. So she pretty much took him under her wing, and he and her were really close. He was basically like her mother at that point. And so, you know, her her mother continued to be really close to Billy after he got released and still saw him and still spoke to him, and Deborah never forgave him for killing her sister. So that was more of a normal reaction. So she saw him around, and she was cordial, but she just never ever forgave him. So that was pretty much the big trauma that I wanted to cover in her life before we kind of put their lives together. So John Mehem, that is the man that she ends up with and that is the man that this story is about. And I wanted to cover him just a little bit because he has a really interesting past. Um, he really, really does. So he was born to his father who basically raised his children um, on his own. And he had a sister and a couple brothers. And his dad was basically a scam artist. And he basically had John running out in front of moving vehicles by the time he was 12. He had him eating glass at restaurants so that they could later prove that it was in the food and get a settlement uh, so his dad was basically a scumbag he used john to lie cheat and scam and basically sec- um insurance fraud was their main thing and he pretty much got that from his dad he became a scammer and his dad always bragged about the fact that they came from a mafia family and so this kind of really stuck to John, and he always ended up being kind of a dirtbag when it came down to it. I hate, you know, to give my own opinion, but I mean, he pretty much was. He was a scammer. He was just above the law. So despite the fact that John was pretty much a scumbag, he actually did really well in high school. He went to Prospect High School, also in California, and I think it was San Jose, but he he was really popular and athletic he did really well he's really smart so he did really well on the side of the fact that he was committing all these scams for his father with his father and so he actually kind of got a little bit of special treatment from his father and actually just a quick correction he was raised with two sisters which are karen and donna Meehan. but he was the only boy so his father actually showed him special treatment but at the same time Made him run in front of moving vehicles where he broke a leg or something like that. So after high school, he actually goes on and goes to the University of Arizona, which is where he actually earned a Bachelor of Arts degree. And then after that, he went to the University of Dayton School of Law. And while he was there, he actually met his wife or his soon-to-be wife. He hadn't married her yet. But at the University of Dayton, before he met his wife, he actually earned the nickname Dirty John. And actually, some of his friends called him Filthy John. Now, he actually earned this nickname because of his ability to lure women. So it was said that he could basically get any woman to do pretty much anything for him. So, you know, he was suave. He was already into scamming people. I guess he was a good you know, bullshitter. So he could do that. So he meets his wife, Tonya Sells. And she was a good girl. She actually went to school for nursing. And then she got a degree in anesthesia. So she wasn't an anesthesiologist, but she was able to give anesthesia. And it is still a pretty well-paying job. So You know, he was really into that. And she actually married him at Joseph Catholic Church of Dayton of Ohio. And she was 25 and he was 31. But she actually believed that he was 26. So already started on a lie. Now, at the wedding, none of John's family attended the wedding. And he had a good excuse for that. And you will see in the story that John is just full of shit like he literally but he's suave so he has a good excuse for everything and you believe it so the reason that he told her that his family didn't attend was because they were addicts and so he didn't want them to ruin the wedding when really you know he didn't want them telling his wife his real age or you know pretty much what a scumbag was so The couple actually ended up having two daughters, and Tonya was so nice, she actually ended up putting him through nursing school, and he also got the same anesthesia degree, so he was able to do that. But, you know, that that didn't go too far. I mean, they were married for 10 years, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, 10 years for a marriage, not that far. So, after 10 years of marriage, John told Tanya that he wanted a divorce. So, she goes and tracks down his mother, Dolores. And he had never allowed her to contact his mother. So, you know, I'm sure he gave her a good excuse for that. I, I don't know that I would go along with that. But, you know, love, I guess. But, so she... She tracks down his mother, Dolores, and Dolores actually revealed that John lied about his birthday and his full name, and that he also had drug charges in California. So Tanya goes ahead and starts searching the home, and she actually ends up finding John's hidden supply of surgical anesthetic drugs. So, he had absolutely no reason to have these because he was giving people anesthesia and, you know, when it comes down to it, it did turn out that he was actually, like, microdosing his patients. So, patients that were, like, having surgery, like, having real procedures, he was stealing their anesthesia and using it for himself and giving them saline, which, guys... It is so dangerous. They can literally stroke out from the pain. So, so just to give you an idea of who we're dealing with here. Um, so anyway, his wife actually finds the drugs in the house. She finds syringes, little vials, and she actually informs the police. And they began an investigation on, on John in September of 2000. Now... There was another investigation that started on January of 2002 and Dennis Lucan was an investigator for the Warren County Sheriff's Office in Ohio and he actually began looking into John after hospital workers had been reporting seeing him bring a gun into the operating room and they actually also saw him steal Demerol and he should have been administering that to patients. So John was just described as being devious, dangerous, and deceptive. And so they were pretty much after him. He had one thing going in 2000. You know, before that was done, he had something else going in 2002. And in April of 2002, John is actually stripped of his license to work as a nurse anesthetist? anesthetist. I think that's what it's called. Um, so long story short, he was stripped of his right to continue to do his job. Police searched his house, found a loaded gun, 45 empty containers for six different prescription medications. And he was basically just in the depth of his addiction. You know, I don't know how much you guys know about addiction, but it goes in stages. And when you're losing your job, you're pretty deep And, you know, everybody kind of starts out thinking that they can control this, that they can, you know, do do it, that they can live life and do what they want to do and use drugs. And that's that's just not the case. And anyway, um, so in 2002, he also attempted to evade arrest and he went to prison. So they go get John and. He fled, I think the story goes that, and I'm not sure if this is true, I, I read it, and long story short, they grabbed John, they found him pretty much unconscious, so he had pled guilty to felony drug theft, but instead of surrendering to authorities, he fled the state, and he checked into a motel in Michigan. So the police actually found him unconscious and he was surrounded by drug vials. So he was basically just like fucked up out of his mind, guys. Like, keep in mind, this is like morphine, anesthesia. Like, he's just fucked up. And he basically told them that he was trying to kill himself. And they're not sure if he did this for pity or if he really, you know, there's no reason for him... Not to be able to kill himself. I know that sounds really shitty. But the truth is that he... That was his job. So his job was to know how much anesthesia to give people. To put them to sleep. So he would know how much it would take for him to be fucked up. Or how much it would take for him to pretty much kill himself. And I actually... Just to insert a quick story. I, I My dad's... One of his best friends was an actual anesthesiologist. And he actually killed himself that way like he really did put himself to sleep and he had been actually same thing as john using the anesthesia uh to get fucked up on for many many years but once his wife divorced him he actually did kill himself he overdosed on anesthesia and i mean people know that he did it because he knew he was very precise he knew what it would take to kill himself so i don't really buy that john was trying to kill himself i think he was just fucked up and looking for pity but here's a road kicker. So the ambulance, they put him in an ambulance because he's fucked up and they don't know if he's going to die. So they put him in an ambulance and the ambulance was actually rushing him to the hospital. When he literally unbuckled his restraints, he grabbed the drug kit, like more drugs. He needed more drugs. And he jumped onto the road. He fled into a nearby JCPenney and basically went into a cargo elevator and into the shaft and kicked the cop in the face. So they eventually handcuffed him. And he tumbled to the ground. Covered in grease. And knocked himself unconscious. So that's the guy that we're dealing with guys. He's literally an addict. He's crazy as shit. So this is where you think that John is running out of luck. Right? No. Think again. John is a lucky a-hole. Like, he is just fucking lucky. So... He's sentenced up to six years in prison in Michigan for resisting arrest and for possession of drugs. Get this. He served only 17 months and was released in 2004. So, you know, he just, he, he's a lucky guy. I, I don't know how else to put it. Um, There's not a whole lot of history as to what he did from 2004 to 2014, but 2014 is pretty much where we come into the story that I'm actually going to tell you guys. I know that was so long for background, but I don't think that we would have quite grasped the entire story if I hadn't covered the background. So... In 2014, John decides to set his sights on basically terrorizing women. I'm not sure if this had anything to do with his mom not being around or if because his wife wanted a divorce because he was such a POS. I'm not really sure, but he basically started stalking and terrorizing women. He pled guilty to stalking a Laguna Beach woman, woman who he met in a hospital when she was recovering from brain surgery so he introduced himself as an anesthesiologist and they dated for a while until she became uncomfortable with his suggestions um, he was just a creepy creepy guy and she pretty much became really uncomfortable but here's the thing he wasn't just a creep he was out for money so she was uncomfortable because he was trying to get her to transfer money into his bank account. And she was he was telling her that it was so that she could hide it from her estranged husband. And when she ended their relationship, he sent her threatening messages and intimate photos of her to her family. So he's just a real creep. I know he also was known to terrorize his ex-wife. I mean, mind you guys, he left her because he wanted to chase other women with money. Basically, he wanted to be like a sugar baby. And he had lost his job, so he started finding women that had money to take care of him. So after he left his wife, he still terrorized her. He threatened her life. He he was just, just crazy. So in October of 2014, John was released from prison. He was actually released on October 8th after serving time for violating a restraining order. So basically, he didn't give a shit about restraining orders. He was known to stalk people and he just didn't care. So he was released on October 8th of 2014 from prison and exactly two days later, he met interior designer Deborah Newell on an over 50s dating site. So you got it. This is Deborah, the one that we were talking about at the beginning of the story. She is absolutely loaded, guys. She was actually known uh, for her sense of style. She always wore Gucci, Dior, Dolce, and Gabbana. Like she wore, she was just loaded. She would wear designers, she had Chanel purses, she had Botox blonde, fake, fake blonde hair. Like she was just, she looked like money. So he met her on a fifty-stating site because she had stated that even though she had all the money in the world and she had her family, you know, she had her daughters, her son, she didn't have love. Mind you, Deborah actually was not as lucky in love as she was with money. She had been married four times by the time that she met John. She had been married and divorced four times and had four kids, three girls, one boy. So she's getting tired. She's getting lonely. She meets John and they actually went out on a date. They went to a restaurant in Irvine, California, and he told her that he was an anesthesiologist in Iraq and served a year with uh, with Doctors Without Borders so she said that he so she is just so happy that she found somebody that is on you know that is just exactly what she wanted she literally said he had everything on my checklist everything I was looking for he was a doctor he had been successful at helping people he had traveled And he had a family, he'd been to Iraq, Doctors Without Borders, that really impressed her. Um, So anyway, their relationship actually developed really quickly. She said she was swept off her feet because he knew everything. He knew exactly what to say and when to say it. Everything was just so calculated after she looked back on it. But she was so head over heels over him that she was willing to overlook some of his strange quirks. One of those that I think I would definitely wonder about this is that she he wore scrubs everywhere. And they weren't just like nice scrubs. They were like dirty scrubs. And he wore them everywhere. Like if she invited him to fancy dinners, dinners with the family, work dinners, he freaking wore scrubs. So he always looked just really unkempt, which... I'm sorry, I've worked with doctors. Doctors are super clean. They have the cleanest hands on earth. You know, they're literally operating and touching people. Like, you can't have dirty hands. And that was one thing is that he had really, like, dirty hands, dirty nails. And that's just not a doctor thing. So she definitely looked over that. He always said that he had no money because his income went to his children. And I I don't know. If you're a doctor, I think you should probably be able to at least support yourself. Um, But he basically said he had no money because all his income went to his children. But her daughters were not as smitten with him. Like, her daughters just called his bluff. And Deborah's oldest daughter, Jacqueline, actually said, I told my mother that she better get this creep out of the house. I don't plan on living with him. So... She had two daughters that are more in the picture because they were younger. So there's Jacqueline, and I love Jacqueline. She's such a firecracker. She reminds me of me. And then there was Tara, and she was the youngest, and she was just so sweet. She she was just a sweetheart. Um, But Jacqueline was a more outspoken one, and Jacqueline was the one that actually lived with Deborah. They had a penthouse, a really beautiful penthouse. in california in um laguna beach and so they they had a really nice penthouse and jacqueline pretty much just lived with her mother and the first time that she met john she didn't like him she thought he was dirty she actually i think she said that she thought that he looked like a homeless person i don't know but tara was actually away at college and she lived with her boyfriend so she was a little bit less vocal even though she was still uncomfortable with john so you know things are moving quickly so she meets him in october and november mind you is just a month later four weeks so things are just moving quickly uh tension started to rise with the newels because deborah and john moved in together so it's been you know three four weeks they're moving in together jacqueline and John didn't get along. So John pretty much pitched Deborah and was like, you know what? She's uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. We should get her own place. So Deborah gets them a little house in Babel Island in Newport Beach, which is prime real estate, guys. And the house was actually in Deborah's name alone because John didn't want his name on the lease. And she paid for it all in cash for like the first year's rent or something like that. It was still in her name, but you know, he, he was living large with her and everything just came to a head the day before Thanksgiving when Tara, so the youngest daughter, the sweeter one that had not been as outspoken, she discovered that they were living together and she confronted her mom and she also found John's nursing certificate. Mind you, John had been telling them that he was a doctor an anesthesiologist. So, you know, why do you have your RN, John? So she actually found this. And so she coupled that with everything that was going on. And John became a whole new person. He instantly transformed with rape. So he accused Tara of snooping through his stuff, which, okay, she was snooping through his stuff. But mind you, that's her mother's house. He's a creep you know she's trying to figure out who he is because obviously deborah is just not paying attention she has those pink love glasses on she just can't see it so he's flipping out he's like asking her why are you snooping through my stuff and he actually said to her that if she was his kid he would smack her and he said this right in front of her mother deborah and tara you know deborah said nothing to this she just sat there And Tara screamed at her mom and she was like, how can you let this man talk to me like this? Like, you don't even know him. I'm your daughter. You just told me he's gonna, you know, he would smack me. Like, come on. And her mom was just like, I don't want this in my house. Like, she just, she pretty much didn't really stick up for her. Not a fan of that. But Tara eventually left. She was super shaken. She was just sick about it. Um, She basically felt like her mom was choosing John over her. And in a sense, she pretty much was. So she met John in October, in November they moved in, got their own place. Jacqueline stayed at the old penthouse. There was still like 5 or 6 months left on the lease, so Deborah was like, "Hey, you can stay here." Which she probably just felt guilty because, you know, come on, Deborah. But anyway, in December Deborah pretty much tells John hey I'm gonna go on a work trip I'm gonna go to Las Vegas and John kind of like hints that he wants to go so she invites him you know she's again head over heels for him you know who doesn't want to go on a nice vacation to Vegas with your significant other so she invites him and what do people do in Vegas that's right so John and her are drinking He gets her like literally so fucked up. And then he suggests that they casually get married in Vegas. He tells her, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Let's just do it. Let's just get married. And so after less than two months of dating, while Deborah was on a business trip, they go to a courthouse and get married. There was no guest there. They also didn't tell her family that they were married for quite a while. So they get married in December. In March, Deborah discovers the truth about John. And this is pretty much when things get a little bit more interesting. So I mentioned earlier Deborah's nephew Shad. So this is Cindy's son. Cindy is her sister that got murdered. So she pretty much treated him like a son. So Deborah's nephew Shad called her. because So up until this moment, Shad had met John, and he actually kind of liked John. Like, they were boys, they kind of got along, you know, they weren't best friends, but he was a little bit more accepting of him than her daughters, so he was a little bit more comfortable around him, he believed the whole Iraq story, so he was just a little bit more gullible, and he was nicer to John, so John was nicer to him, so they, they were kind of boys, they got along, but he Shad kind of slowly started catching on, and... He actually teamed up with Jacqueline, and they got a private investigator and started looking into John's past. So this private investigator uncovered many many things, and Jacqueline actually had to sell one of her designer purses. She paid like three grand for this private investigator, and her and Shad pretty much just were seeing what was going on. They were following up on everything the private investigator was saying. So finally shad calls his aunt deborah and raises his concerns about john and he tells her that he has time in jail and he lied about being an anesthesiologist like basically he's like this guy is lying to you and you know deborah she wasn't dumb you know she might have been in love but she wasn't dumb so even though she acted unconcerned she privately began looking through John's documents and she did find evidence of his long history of seducing conning and harassing women so she did kind of heed to what he said and um also he was such an a-hole to Shad I know that at one point Shad went to the house looking for Deborah and John knew that he had already been kind of talking to Deborah about him and he pretty much yelled at him told him that he didn't have an aunt anymore and that it was a good thing that his dad killed his mother because he would be such a disappointment he's such an embarrassment so i know earlier i said that we didn't know what happened in the 10 years between 2004 and 2014 when he met deborah well john was a busy boy from 2005 to 2014 from when he got out of prison in Michigan. For the drug theft to the time that he met Deborah Newell, he had seduced, swindled, and terrorized multiple women, many of whom he had met on dating sites, posing as a doctor. And by the time that he married Deborah in 2014, three separate women around Southern California had standing restraining orders against them. In the recent years, at least three others had requested them. So Deborah actually found the records. He had all his court records put away in her house, so she actually looked for his stuff. She was a little bit suspicious, so she found that. She found all the court records. She also found printouts from websites on which women share information about dangerous men, and there were so many warnings about John. They said, do not let this man into your life. Um, another one called him a con artist, a classic sociopath, psychopath, um, and they also, she also discovered that he had a nickname dating back to his brief time in law school, Dirty John, so he was just basically this strange lone wolf guy, did all kinds of scandalous type things, and it wasn't just with women. And this was just something that his classmate had said. So, I mean, I don't know. He sounds pretty crazy to me. But his classmates basically just said that he was scandalous and did things with not just women. So you take that how you want to take it. Um, You can't trust him for anything. He's rotten top to bottom. So, I mean, she's literally reading people saying this about John. So, imagine you think somebody's one person... And next thing you know, he has court records. He's been a prisoner. He also has a whole, like, fan base on a site or different sites saying that he is just a piece of shit. So, Deborah pretty much planned on leaving him. And so she moves out of the Babel Island house. And he basically had to be in the hospital at that time because he was having surgery. He was having back surgery. So while he was out, she pretty much moved out. Like He was in the hospital, and she just was like, peace out. I'm out of here. So she moves out, and, you know, this was around March of 2015. Um, I know there isn't, like, exact times from what I saw – But that was in March, and she leaves him. He's in the hospital for back surgery, and she's just like, adios. She, you know, deuces out of there. And then in June 2015, she freaking reconciles with him. Mind you, her family pretty much knew everything at this point because when she left him, she uncovered everything, and her family had also uncovered everything with the private investigator. So she was looking through his stuff, And she had no clue that they had been, you know, following him and having a PI follow him. So they knew separately and she knew separately. But when it came down to it, they all came together and figured out that he was a scumbag all around. And her and Jacqueline, her oldest daughter, had been getting, you know, along better. And her and Tara, Tara ended up breaking up with her boyfriend and moving back home. So she was doing, you know, her own thing with her family And they were really close, but they also knew everything that she'd been through. And here's a lesson, guys. If you're not done with somebody, I'm not saying that you should ever stay with somebody like that, but I've learned this lesson the hard way. If you're not ever done with somebody, please, 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 please do not go blab your mouth to your family because when you take them back, they will still hate them. And then you're going to be mad that they hate him and you're going to be mad that you can't include them and that they're bad-mouthing him, but it's really your fault because you shouldn't say... Bad things about him that like are really gonna piss your family off, unless you're really really done, because then you're gonna have to hear about it forever, and that's basically what happened to Deborah. So she badmouthed him for months, and after months of him leaving messages and phone calls, you know, John basically was not giving up his golden ticket. He spent all these months calling her, begging her to take him back. He told her that he needed her, and that he would. So, John's telling her that he's going to get clean, that he just needs her to stand by his side, which, guys, oh, addicts can be manipulators. Beware of that. So, he tells her, you know, classic manipulator move. You know, I need to get clean, but I need to be with you. I can't get clean without you. I can't do this without you. So, anyway, she is lonely, she's still without a man, she misses him, she loves him, I think she truly, truly loved him, and, you know, she she gives in to him, she really does, she gives in to him, he promises that her that he's gonna get clean, well, of course, he blamed everything on his addiction, he's like, you're right, this is all true, but this is all because I was just an addict, and I just, I can't be responsible for all this stuff, I was just on drugs, and then, also... Um, he told her that a lot of the women, it was, it was his ex-wife trying to get back at him. So, <coughs> sorry, sorry guys. I don't have the Rona. I just always cough. Anyway, so he tells her that he basically is not responsible for any of this shit and she buys it. and She takes him back. Um, and he had an explanation for everything because John is a con artist and that is what they do and they're convincing. And he always had a story and so he basically told her that he lied because he thought that she was too good for him and he didn't want to lose her. And he knew that he would leave her and he was so lucky and she's so forgiving. She's a love of his life and she just made him a better person. So she just eats it all up. And Deborah and John... Moved into a new apartment in Irvine, California. She keeps this a secret for a while from her family because, you know, they're not going to be happy. But they eventually find out because, you know, they're her family. They, they can obviously tell that there's a difference. <coughs> and nothing changes because John is still John. And... After a year and three months of marriage, Deborah was still suspicious. She was increasingly uncomfortable with his behavior. And the thing is that she, she wasn't able to be around her family because not only did they hate him, now there was a bigger issue because he wasn't even allowing her to see them. So he slowly wasn't content with just taking her money and her time and her love. He wanted all control over her. So he actually... You know, made it worse, and his tension between him and Jacqueline had worsened. He didn't allow her to see her kids, especially Jacqueline, because she was so vocal about the fact that she didn't like him. And one day, he actually caught Deborah sneaking away to see her, and he said that he would throw Jacqueline off the ocean if it ever happened again. So, I mean, why that wasn't like, you know, get the hell out? I don't understand. But again, I you can't speak unless you're in that situation. But she eventually reached her breaking point in March because she not only hadn't seen her kids, she wasn't allowed to see them or speak to them. He was tracking her. He was tracking her bank accounts. He um, was like asking her why she bought this and why she took money out and why this and that. And she's like, John, it's my money. And he was like, what's yours is mine. We're married. It's my money. So he, again, when I was like watching this and reading it, I seriously wanted to choke this man. No, he was just so entitled and just such a piece of shit. Anyway, she finally reached her breaking point. She filed to annul the marriage in April. John went back to Nevada and started living in a camper. So, you know, she leaves him. He's living in Nevada. He actually gave up trying to get her back on like the first time. And he actually started sending her threatening messages, demanding money. He was going to ruin her life. Um, and here's the kicker. He actually later on people said that he made women his projects. So whenever you were his project, he was pretty much going to wreck your entire life. And people thought that maybe he did this for certain things, but he really didn't. Like, this was like a hobby of his. Like, he was just such a sociopath that he just got some sort of sick pleasure out of just, just, like, hurting your feelings, pretty much. So after he saw that she, like, probably wasn't going to take him back, He moved on. He made her his project. He was just like, he actually didn't just promise to ruin her. He started to ruin her. And she she actually ended up requesting a restraining order but an Orange County judge actually denied the request because he said that there was no imminent threat because John lived in another state and had never physically harmed her, which he never touched her. But he was such a manipulator, and sociopath. He didn't need to touch her, you know? If anything, he was so smart and so good at conning that he knew how far he could push things without getting in trouble and what could be proven and couldn't be proven. And I'm sorry, if you hit someone, that can be proven. And that, that would obviously put him in danger. He was on parole. So he pretty much always just stopped short of getting in trouble for anything that he did. <clears throat> but she... And not only was he, like, ruining her life, he was also ruining Jacqueline's life, her oldest daughter, because he freaking hated her. He would text her threats. I know that there was a couple of notable threats or, like, notable text messages. One time he told her, you know, I'll throw you into the ocean. He said that to her, too. And then another time, he had told Jacqueline, jump off a building. That would make me smile. Head first will do. Um, and Jacqueline, I literally love this girl. So Jacqueline actually Googled a piece of shit and sent it to him. So I thought that was pretty funny. Um, but he actually ended up like actually like messing with her life. She had a job, um, and she actually was also going to school for real estate and he ended up calling her school and her job and just bad mouthing her. She lost her job and just didn't look good at school. He was mad that Deborah was paying for her uh, real estate schooling and her test, whatever it is that it takes. But he was pretty much messing with everyone's life. And so Deborah finally, she just, she cut him off. She stopped talking to him. She stopped taking his calls. She stopped answering his messages. So <clears throat> they're going through, you know, a whole court ordeal. And on June eleventh of two thousand and sixteen, John or Deborah's Jaguar actually disappeared from its parking spot at her office in Irvine, California. And surveillance footage actually showed that John stole it. Uh, So, not very smart, John. There was cameras, and the car was actually later found a block away, soaked in gasoline, and with a mild fire damage. So he had tried to set it on fire and failed to pretty much set it all the way on fire. So it was just like a little bit, I guess it was like a seat that was mildly burnt. So they basically, they brought him in about the car and he had this whole excuse of, I didn't break into the car. You can't tell me I stole it because I have the keys. And he did. He had another set of keys. He actually always drove that car. That's the car that he always drove. So he had his own set of keys. And so he was just like, yeah i didn't steal my own car i borrowed it i it's basically still my car we're still married she we're supposed to be sharing it but she doesn't always let me share it so i just came and took it i didn't want to interrupt her at work so i just took it and then somebody stole it and set it on fire which i mean come on guys it's total bullshit but long story short there was really no proof of the video camera so i don't think he was ever convicted of that but Things just kept escalating. There was still kind of something ongoing. Deborah had her own lawyers, and he had like a, you know, government lawyer, and so they're going through different things, and things just keep escalating. So that was in June of, eleventh of two thousand sixteen, and then a month later, on August twentieth of two thousand sixteen, everything comes to a head, and this is pretty much, the craziest thing I sw- this. This story just does not get—it's it, crazy. So, <clears throat> Tara had an apartment by herself, and Jacqueline the night before um, had seen John, and she was basically going to stay with Tara, and she was outside with a friend in a car, and she saw that John was sitting outside of the building. So outside of Tara, her little sister's building. So she actually chased them. Her and her friend chased John and they they eventually lost him, but they she's crazy. She followed him in the car. And so she saw that he was she thought he was driving like a dark Prius. So she pretty much goes and tells Tara, Hey, you need to be on the lookout. John was outside the building. I followed him, but I lost. Him. So she tells Tara, her sister. I followed him, but I lost him. And she also tells her he's driving a dark sedan. I think it was a Prius. So she basically warns her sister that John's in town because they thought he was still in Nevada. Aside from when he stole her mother's car. But she she basically tells Tara that he's back in town and that she saw him outside. And so then... That evening, Tara returned home from work, parked her car in the lot outside of the Newport Beach apartment building, and as she got out of the car, John actually approached her from behind and attacked her with a knife. So, later on, they said that the car that her sister, Jacqueline, had told her to look out for, he actually had switched cars, so she wasn't looking. She was looking out for that specific car, and he had switched cars, and so she was kind of, like, unaware and so he came up from behind her and attacked her with a knife. Uh, she said that he was trying to push her into the car. <clears throat> and that she tried to get away from him. She was screaming. And then this girl, I love her. She is just such a fighter. But he, she, since she was screaming, he puts his hand over her mouth. And she bit him. She like bit the shit out of him. So of course he like, you know, let's go of her because she bit his hand. And... She was like, it wasn't a fair fight. He was 6'2", she was 5'2". And even though he had lost weight over the weeks, he was still a lot larger than her. But she was still able to defend herself. And she bites him, right? But then she was also wearing these really heavy rain boots. So she pretty much had really, really thick thread on those boots. And so that really, really helped her. the fight and you're you're gonna hear why but during the fight she bites him they end up on the ground and she's actually kicking him so she starts just wildly kicking him she has these heavy rain boots on and during the fight she actually kicked the knife out of his hand um he did manage i think he like stabbed her arm once or something like that but she like kicked the knife out of his hand and then he managed she managed to grab it and she actually stabbed him 13 times and here is where it gets really crazy so she actually later on said that what the way that she was able to beat him is she actually watched a lot of walking dead and if you've ever seen that you know there's a lot of fight scenes in the walking dead but she actually had stabbed him like 12 times on his back and like his body but then she remembered that in walking dead you have to get them in the head or they don't die so she stabs him through his eye like she literally stabbed stabbed him through his eye into his brain and that's pretty much where he just like went limp and just laid there and she was just like i just didn't want him to get back up i didn't want him to try to hurt me again she said it's either him or me which i guess is like the show's motto It's like you or me or whatever i watched it i'm not that big of a fan um to where i know like their quotes but it, it is a good show <clears throat> But that's pretty much what saved her life. She literally credits the show for saving her life. She said that she pretty much took over, pretended she was on the show, stabbed him through the eye. And then a, uh, like a 14 year old girl, her neighbor had actually been watching the fight. She had ran down to help Tara. She wrapped Tara's wound in a beach towel and other neighbors came down, called 911. Tara actually called her mother and she was like, I'm really, really sorry, mom. I think I killed your husband. And, you know, Deborah was just like beside herself and ran to her car, drove to the scene. But John actually wasn't even dead yet. Paramedics administered CPR and his pulse returned. So they kept him alive. But on August 24th, so just four days later, he died at the hospital at the age of 57. This was four days after his fight with Tara. And he was declared brain dead. So they actually asked Deborah, his wife, to to make the decision. And she just said, I don't want this decision over him. I barely even knew him. So they asked his next of kin, which was his sister, um, his sister, Karen. Now... Keep in mind, he did not have a good relationship with his sisters. He treated them like garbage. Like, he pretty much just treated women like garbage. So, he treated them like garbage. They weren't close. They hadn't seen him in many, many years. They didn't want to see him. So, when it was up to uh, Karen to make this decision, she said, take him off. So, you know, she didn't hesitate. She was just like, it's fine. Take him off. Life support. They actually wanted to use his organs to donate to donate the organs but when they got in there and they realized that all of his organs were pretty much shot from all the years of you know heavy drug use he his organs were pretty much like unusable they were just rotting inside so he was cremated and there was no memorial service no funeral he was just cremated and you know there was people that were just hated him it's really sad at the end of his life no one cared for him no one liked him even his own sister was like yeah i don't really care you can take him off like she just was really you know indifferent to it and he pretty much just you know he died alone he treated people like crap and they no one loved him nobody cared about him and that was pretty much the end of the story i mean i think it's such a inspiring story as far as like Tara just being such a bad bee and she pretty much just took it upon herself to take out this man that had been terrorizing her mother and her family mind you of course he came to her but at the same time it's funny because I think my theory is that he picked Tara because she was the younger one the smallest one I mean she was like a little girl and she was you know by the time that he like came to her and everything, like, she probably was, like, the less threatening one. Deborah was, you know, he knew that she knew some self-defense. Jacqueline was crazy. <laughs> she had followed him, so I could see why he would have picked Tara. But Tara ended up the one killing him. And Shad, her cousin, Deborah's nephew, actually gave an interview. And he said, out of all the people in the world, Tara would be the last person that I would ever think would take John to hell. And, you know, that's crazy to me. But I think it's such a cool story. I know that like it sounds really morbid and everything and it's weird that I'm like so fascinated by it. But it's just such a thing where it's like, it's like you the whole time you're scratching your head as to like, how can you do this? Oh my God, how can you let him talk to your child like that? How can you, you know, this or that? or I wouldn't do that but at the same time we've all been there like not not quite to that extent but like we've all probably been with a guy that had you like wrapped around his finger that you didn't see all of the red flags because you were so in love with them and then later on you're like oh wow what he was you know crazy he was a sociopath he was a liar he was a cheater and you know you don't see it until you're outside of the situation and now Deborah is happy and healthy and she you know her daughter tara did many years of counseling you know it's been like six years now and she did many years of counseling and she's doing better and you know the whole family is doing better and it's just you always think like it wouldn't happen to me and like this woman was like you know normal woman she was actually she had money she had everything that she wanted in the world and she still got wrapped up in the situation and then also, it, it makes me think, like, how many people are there out there like this that you don't know? Because she had no clue that John was, like, the person that he was. And look at all the stuff that ended up happening. And, again, that's, like, to another magnitude. But think about it, guys. Like, how how many people have you met that you thought were good people? And then they ended up being, like, crazy or something. They ended up doing things to you. I know I've been in that situation with a roommate where I thought she was awesome. And then she ended up being crazy and just psycho so you know in the end you never know who people are be careful stay safe you know don't trust people don't be too trusting people always think that I'm like paranoid but I'm I'm just I don't trust anybody until I get to know them I always look around my surroundings I always watch over my back I don't trust a soul unless I they have given me a reason to trust them just be careful. Do not let people manipulate you. Do not let people use you. Just keep your eyes out. Look for those red flags because this can happen to men, too. I mean, usually it's the other way around where it's like a sugar baby and like this rich man and, you know, the black widows. Like, guys, this really happens. And it's way more common than people think, especially when it comes to like life insurance and things like that. So anyway, sorry I went on a rant. I just thought that this was really interesting really cool. I hope you guys really like this uh, podcast and you like this episode. I'm sorry again for last week. I kind of had a busy week. But thank you for tuning in again. I hope you have a great week. Catch you on the flip.